Welcome to The Driven Entrepreneur, where we sit down with visionaries, trailblazers, and entrepreneurs, and discover why and how they do what they do. We'll get the backstory, plus plenty of life and business lessons along the way. Here's your host, Matt Browning. Hey, this episode is brought to you by my very own NLP Practitioner Course. I've been teaching neuro-linguistic programming, or NLP, for nearly 15 years. It is the most powerful tool for communication on the planet, and it can be yours today. For a very limited time, I'm giving away my entire NLP course workbook for free. Go to nlpwithmatt.com. All the patterns, all the tools, and the techniques of NLP in the complete course workbook, the same one that we use to teach our live certification classes, yours free. NLPwithmatt.com. Get it today. Let's get back to the show. Hey, welcome back to The Driven Entrepreneur. What's up, my friend? So, so good to be with you this week. Um, you know, it's it's been, uh, it's been quite a year so far, we can say so, uh, for sure. And, you know, business doesn't stop. You don't stop. Nothing stops. And as we keep on rolling through, uh, I think right now, one of the most important things that we can do in our businesses is to keep the right attitude, keep the right mindset. Mm -hmm. And I'm really excited to share uh, my guest this week is really someone who does just that. Um, but he's flipping the table on attitude. And I really like this. My guest is Michael Brody Waite. He's a recovering addict an acclaimed speaker. He's a three-time CEO, an Inc. 500 uh, founder. He's a leadership coach and a has a phenomenal TED Talk called Great Leaders Do What Drug Addicts Do. And we're going to talk all about uh, really how to flip the attitude upside down about what a great leader should be doing. Um, that TED Talk's been viewed nearly 2 million times in 25 countries. This is going to be a conversation for the ages. Michael, are you around, my friend? Yeah, dude, I'm here. I'm glad to be here, too. Dude, so, so good. We, we've been chatting just a little bit offline before we got started. I'm excited to get into kind of finding out about your journey here. And I want to jump right into uh, to the deep end on the addiction side. I have my own story a lot of my, my um, listeners know about. I actually wrote a book called Total Freedom from Addictions back in 2007. So I'm curious when you're growing up, is this something that is kind of pervasive in, in your life? Is it in your family? Or were you the last person anyone expected to fall into addiction? Tell me a little bit about kind of the origin of how it started. Yeah, so I've got the genetic predisposition because when I was six months old, my dad came home from the bar drunk and he picked me up out of my crib, dropped me and then said to himself, I can be a drunk or I can be a father, but I can't be both. And that was when he stopped drinking. So growing up, my parents told me that I had the predisposition to be an addict. And I'll tell you, what you do not tell a kid that you think is going to be an addict is that you might be an addict and don't use, because then all I wanted to do was to use. So I didn't have any major traumas or anything, but by the age of 23, I've been kicked out of school. I've been fired from my job. I've been kicked out of my house. Uh, my car was repossessed. I was throwing up bloods. This is kind of funny, but not funny. But my doctor said the only thing higher than my liver enzymes was me. <laughs> and I, and it, and I can no, laugh no, about that, that now. That, that's, that's funny. I mean, sad, it is. that's funny. It's, it's sad, but it is funny. And, and you know, what's great is I can laugh about that now, but the point is at age 23, man, I was throwing up blood. I, I didn't have any money. The only money I, I had was what I could steal from my friends. 
Uh, I have been just completely wrecked. And every day from the minute I woke up to the minute I passed out at night, my job was to get and stay high. And I knew that I would not live to see my 30th birthday. You, you mentioned the genetic predisposition and, and I realized you can make a really strong argument really on either side. And I think the, the landscape is still evolving a hundred years from now, we're going to look back at what we thought we knew and, you know, in 2021 and kind of laugh. Do you think when, when you're, when your parents came and said, Hey, you have a genetic predisposition, you know, you got to watch out for this, you know, don't go get high. Do you think that if they never said anything and they, and you kind of never knew the story of your, of your dad and so forth, do you think you'd be making the same choices? Nurture versus nature, maybe I'm sure something you thought about. I'm curious about it. Yeah, no, that's a great question. I, I think I still would have ended up being an addict because I was fundamentally ill-equipped to deal with life in life's terms. Like when they passed out the instructions on how to deal with life, I was skipped. And that's a product of how I was raised. I was incredibly sheltered and I wasn't taught how to cope with life. Um, so what I think would have changed is I think my clean date wouldn't be September 1st, 2002. I think it would be later or I would be dead because I would have found a way to medicate my feelings one way or another. They just fast tracked my awareness that there was a particular option that could help me. And when I went to college, I started to access that option pretty frequently. No, that's it too. And like you, you talked about awareness, because um, that's interesting, right? It's like you don't want to pre-frame your kids and say, hey, this is going to be a struggle for you, whatever it is, right? Whether it's, you know, you see early onset ADD and you go, hey, this is something you really got to work at. You don't want to pre-frame them that that's hard. You kind of want to give them a, a better road. But to flip that, just like you said, without the awareness, you might not have woken up at that time and been aware and thought, well, this probably isn't a problem because I don't have a problem. But knowing you have that predisposition, that's really interesting. Um, so you get clean. What was, uh, you, you described kind of a lot of different bottom, but what was the, the first thing that started kind of coming back together for you? You know, I remember when, um, again, I, I walked through my own journey and when, when I first got clean, it was like I watched, you know, some people, they learned how to relate to people better. Some people were able to hold a job down. Some people, it was their health that changed. What was the first couple things for you that really transformed? And did you get kind of a, like a spiraling effect, like a positive spiral where one thing changed and another thing changed? Tell me a little bit about that kind of first year of recovery. Yeah, I mean, so the first thing I, I know, the first thing was I could sleep through the night. Uh, that was something I couldn't ever do. And the second thing was when I looked in the mirror, I didn't hate what I saw. And those are two fundamental things that help fuel my use and being able to reframe my life and, and learn. You know, I went to a 12-step program, still active in a 12-step program. And, and the thing that they taught me was, and I distill this down into three principles in my book and my TED Talk, and, um, but they taught me how to practice rigorous authenticity, how to surrender the outcome, and how to do uncomfortable work. And so you asked if there was a positive cycle. Those three principles applied to the real world are very uncomfortable and most people don't do them, but I didn't have a choice. I had a loaded gun pointed at my head because I knew that if I didn't do what they told me to do, I would relapse and die. And so I had to practice those principles. And I personally, once I got through the discomfort, saw, wow, this is a competitive advantage in life. And then later on, I applied it to my professional life. But yes, I started to experience victory after victory after victory. There's tons of setbacks too. But I started to feel like, wow, I have the instructions for how to deal with life on life's terms. 
I love that term. I, I yeah, I said that quite a bit. Life and life's terms, man. Um, so let's talk about those principles a little bit. And this is something I'm excited to get into with you um, because, well, goodness sakes, it's just such a, as I said in the intro, when I brought, when I brought you on, it's such a, a counterintuitive concept. Your book, Great Leaders Live Like Drug Addicts. Um, three principles you talked about. There's probably more about that. So let's, let's grab one of those uh, from the book. It's actually a, a pretty phenomenal idea and a really phenomenal concept to get into. What's the, what was the first principle you said? And let's break that down a little bit. Sure. Practice rigorous authenticity. And so uh, I'm a huge Brene Brown fan. So all the Brene Brown fans out there, what's up? If I ever met her, I would pee on myself. Absolutely. hundred percent. Shout out to, um, and he's sober. So shout out to Brene. Good job. Yeah, there you go. But here's the thing. She's an academic and I needed like the idiot's guide to implementation for what her inspiration provided. And I didn't get that from her work. I got it from a 12-step program. So practicing rigorous authenticity. Authenticity is buzzy. Everybody can practice curated or selective authenticity. Like you can keep it real in front of grandma, but like in front of the customer, the investor, the girlfriend, uh, you know, the friend that where everything's on the line, it's really hard. It's really scary to be true to yourself uh, because we worry, we are addicted to worrying about what other people think of us. And so practicing rigorous authenticity is identifying the metaphorical masks that we wear, the, how we hide ourselves. This is something I learned in treatment and being able to systematically take them off. And no matter what the cost is, whether it's small or high, be true to yourself and be real. And I, I, for me, I learned that at the beginning of rehab. And I learned that, I continue to learn that today, how hard it is. So there's a big difference between knowledge and action. It is easy to know that I should practice rigorous authenticity to this day. I'm an expert in it and it is still so freaking hard. Can you give me an example of when it's maybe the toughest? So say you're, uh, you're a three-time CEO. I know you've, uh, um, with an, an Inc. 500 fastest growing company. What's an example of a time when you know you need to be more authentic as an owner, as, as, a, as a leader in your business, but it's really hard to do, or maybe even you fail at it? What are some examples of, of not being able to take the mask off? Like, Because the, the concept's easy, right? Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense, man. Michael, that makes sense to me. I should take the mask off. I want to be authentic all the time. But there's a reason why we don't. When do you see it not working? Most of the time. Or when do you see it the most challenge? <laughs> most of the time it's not working. But uh, I can remember. But why? So why? Because of the fear. It's because we don't know how to let go of that fear. And we are conditioned to want to be liked and accepted by other people. But then there's also in the professional world as entrepreneurs, our success is based off of people liking us. So I'll tell you a story. So in 2010, I had this successful career at a Fortune 50 company, but I'd always wanted to be an entrepreneur. And I left that Fortune 50 job at the height of the recession here in the US in 2010. And with my partner, we co-founded a startup called Inquicker. And our mission was to reinvent access to healthcare, make it easy to schedule a healthcare appointment 24-7 in 30 seconds or less on a mobile device. We were stupid, man. We had no patents, no connections, no investors. Like we'd never done this before. Middle of the recession and in healthcare, I'd never been in healthcare before. Maxed out my bank, my Citibank card, uh, Citibank credit card, maxed out my uh, 401k by draining it, took everything out of my savings account, bet everything on this company. And six months into it, we were about to run out of money 
And we had an opportunity to expand one of our customers. We had six hospitals under contract. And one of them was part of a, of a larger system that had 50 hospitals across the nation. And I've been pitching them on an enterprise expansion. And that was going to be our ticket to get money in the door and continue our dream because we had a couple employees. And I remember one night, November 2010, um, we are celebrating because they just said that they're going to expand nationwide with us. They're going to spend $3 million in 16 states or 15 states advertising our product. And it's the highest I got in recovery without using a drug. And the next day, I find out that our software has failed at their hospital and not just in a small way, in a way that is in breach of contract. And it requires that we notify them within 24 hours, literally the next day. And I'm crushed because I know that if we tell them that the, that the software failed, they would cancel the expansion, cancel their contract, become a detractor in the market. We would run out of money. I'd be bankrupt. Company would be done. Employees would be looking for jobs and I'd be sitting there talking about what could have been. And my partner offers me an out. He says, hey, you know, we only impacted one patient. It didn't affect their health. They don't know. And the hospital doesn't know. Let's just fix the glitch in our software and not tell them. There's no reason to ruin the company over this. And I had about eight years clean. And, uh, you know, practicing rigorous authenticity was something that had kept me clean, something I did to get to that position in my career. But at the same time, I'd never been in a high stakes moment like that where everything was on the line. And I had no idea how to lead a startup, but I knew how to be a recovering drug addict. And that's why my book's called Great Leaders Look Like Drug Addicts. Because instead of saying, what do I do to be a great leader? I asked myself, what do I do to be a great recovering addict? And it just so happens that I'm trying to think about what I'm going to do. One of my sponsees calls me with a problem that he's working through. And I find myself telling him, you got to practice rigorous authenticity. Surrender the outcome, dude. It does not matter what happens. Just practice rigorous authenticity. And I get off the phone with him. And I'm like, okay, I know what I need to do. I didn't have to call a CEO coach. I didn't have to go to EO or, or anyone else. I knew what I had to do. And so I ignored my partner's comment and I called the customer. I disclosed the failure, bracing for the ruining of our company. And instead of it ruining our company, they just started freaking laughing. And when they were done laughing, I was like, what's so funny? And they're like, we have partners that we know affect a patient or two. When I get a call like this, it's because they've affected 20,000 and it's hurt their health. So I was like, what does that mean for us? She was like, now I know that you are literally our most trusted vendor. Even though you're a bunch of young kids that don't know what you're doing, you are our most trusted vendor. And so I am excited to go nationwide. Dude, that is awesome. Yeah. So you're talking about facing, like in a real business world, you're facing that fear of oh my gosh, I'm going to tell the truth. And you know what? When you're talking about that story, Michael, like I, re I can remember being a little boy, you know, breaking my dad's stereo. I, I, he had one of those mm -hmm. old little little needle ones, you know, that you crank it up and, and the needle goes. And I kept going and the needle went too far and it wouldn't come back. And I'm probably six years old or something. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm going to die. This is the end of my life. I just made a mistake. And you have two choices, right? You bury it and you blame your brother or you face the music. And I did option three, which is run away. I ran away for the whole afternoon down the street. And I like, I just knew, and I knew that I was going to die. And I finally came back. And instead of blaming my brother, I said, I did it. And what's interesting as a parent is when you reward honesty with a mistake with victory, you know, when you reward the honesty, it's so, I, I think it's just such a big thing in society, isn't it? Like, 
where, you know, hey, you told the truth and you messed up and then I'm going to punish the mess up. I'm going to give you the consequence. Or what if we instead celebrated the honesty and then people were like, yeah, I can actually share this. And then, hey, there is a consequence perhaps. And that comes later and that's important. But, you know, I remember that moment of like, okay, I got to tell the truth. This is better. This is better than anything. And you got rewarded literally for messing up, but not messing up or telling the truth. Well, I was just going to say that like the feeling you had as a six-year-old internally. So like you're a six-year-old and I love that story and you made an external mistake. But the feeling inside for you as a six-year-old, for me as a 20-something or early 30s entrepreneur as a recovering addict or for a Fortune 10 CEO in the boardroom, it feels the same inside. And I think that that's like one of the most important points because leaders think that they need to curate the image of who they are and they need to portray this level of strength. But now we are living in a world where everybody's trying to be something that they're not. And so when a leader can lead themselves by acknowledging their humanity and sharing it with the people that they lead, they then activate the humanity in all of their people, which is their full potential. And that manifests in really like concrete things. For example, at a big company, most people are hiding their weaknesses. What if like in my company that I built, everybody aggressively shared their weaknesses and you'd be fired if you didn't. And so instead of like worrying about covering up our weaknesses and making a line that's going down, go up, everybody's working on growing, right? And, and so there's an opportunity here where what you're talking about, like as a parent, the question is, if the good thing for the parent is to cultivate that honesty by not punishing the acknowledgement of the mistake, why are leaders punishing themselves by hiding their imperfections while everybody is watching. It is an asinine way to lead. It worked in the command and control model in the history of the world. It no longer works when a services economy, people wanna trust humans and we all have our humanity. And when you can lead yourself, you get the permission to lead others in this new world. And the leaders that don't understand that are gonna be left behind. I couldn't agree more, man. And you know, the proof's in the pudding, even when you look at uh, just anywhere on social media, that even in the midst of the cancel culture that we, we find ourselves in, there's something about the canceling, you know, most often is, you know, the internet trying to call out a leader, right? Hey, we found out this, or hey, we, you know, um, whatever, one of the, you know, big company has, uh, has the webinar about how to be more white. And all of a sudden people find out it gets quote unquote leaked and everyone freaks out. But what's interesting is if you make a mistake and you go to social, you know, or you go to your people and you say, hey, we tried this and we, this was dumb. I can't believe what a mistake I made and I want to share it with you and I feel bad about it and I'm, I'm learning about it. Like you're just genuinely sharing your heart. You're not trying to have a political spin. You know, you're not trying to have a, a customer service spin. You're just being real. People come back and, and they reward that in droves. No question. Hey. So again, we're talking, if you're joining us recently with Michael Brody Waite, and this is the Driven Entrepreneur, of course, love, love, love you tuning in live. And if, if you missed an episode or if you missed the beginning, you can always go and find this on demand. It drops every Friday or Thursday at midnight on all places where you get podcasts on demand, Stitcher, Spotify, Apple, et cetera, on the Driven Entrepreneur. And Michael Brody Waite is, uh, we are talking all things leadership. And we're talking about his new book. Uh, well, the book came out just last year, but it was a pandemic release book. So I'm excited to get this book, you know, on track as well, because I'm sure you did amazing during that time, but it was also pandemic time. So let's get back into great leaders live like drug addicts. 
And uh, you have a, a pretty cool little thing. I've never seen this before, Michael. Um, you're giving away a free 30-minute intro uh, to the book. And you can buy it, of course, if it's uh, resonating with your heart. And if you go to greatleaderbook.com, you can get a free 30-minute intro to the book and really check it out and see if this is a message that you want to bring into your company, you want to bring into your startup. Um, and you, in the book, Michael, you share some principles in here that we've been talking about one of those principles of being authentic, taking the metaphorical mask off and letting people see you, you know, warts and all, so to speak. Um, as a recovering addict, as a, a clean CEO, and you've been, you shared that your clean date earlier was 2002. So, you know, at, at the time of this recording, you're coming up on, is it coming up on 19 years or already 19? Uh, just recently celebrated 18 years in September. Well, I guess I am kind of coming up on 19. Wow, time flies. Yeah, it just does, right? will be in September. Six months ago and six months later, it'll be 19. That's nuts. Um, and you, you mentioned that you're still very active in, in like in 12-step programs. And I don't want to, you know, jump into which, you know, which places you go and that kind of thing. But can you just share maybe a lesson for anyone out there that, you know, whether entrepreneur or not, um, if you're someone struggling in the midst of addiction still, or maybe they've gotten clean, they've gotten over it. What are some principles that you stay with after 18 and a half years um, building success, but also personally, right? Staying clean and, and more than staying clean, really living a life worth living is what I'm hearing from you. W what are some things that, that we should keep in mind that might help someone kind of earlier on the road? Yeah, I mean, uh, not to like beat a dead horse, but the principles that I talked about are really my encapsulation of what I've learned in, in the 12 steps because before I ever applied them to build an Inc. 500 company or, or do a TED Talk or whatever, Practicing rigorous authenticity was the first thing that I really learned how to do in a 12-step program. And the reason that that was so important is I was taught that I am addicted to hiding myself. And the truth is that as a leader, most people are addicted to hiding themselves. The difference between you and an addict is I break out into handcuffs or get a DUI or rob people when I'm hiding myself because I'm trying to pursue a drug to make myself feel better because I'm hiding who I am. And so practicing rigorous authenticity, the first time I practiced that was by admitting that I was a drug addict and admitting that I had a problem. And so that's where the second principle comes in. Everybody knows they should do that, but the fear stops them. And that's why learning how to do the second principle, surrender the outcome, was so important. I couldn't control the fact that I was an addict. I could control if I did something about it. And so often we worry, leaders, addicts, whatever, about things that we can't control. And we waste so much energy that we don't impact what we can control. But when we're able to surrender the outcome, we're able to do this thing called uncomfortable work. And you want to talk about uncomfortable work? It's walking into a rehab and saying, I'm Mike and I'm an addict and having a bunch of addicts stare back at you and counselors stare back to you and having no idea what you just got yourself into. And then asking for a sponsor and going to meetings and doing all this stuff. This is what helped me get clean. And so if you're out there, and you've got a problem, the only weakness is in not doing something about it. And here's my question to you if you're out there and you have a problem. What if the worst thing about you could become the best thing about you? I thank God every single day that I am an addict and that I have recovery. And I use it as a professional superpower. I, it taught me how to practice rigorous authenticity. It taught me how to surrender the outcome. It taught me how to do uncomfortable work. And that helped me rebuild my life first in very practical ways by getting a place to live, by getting transportation, by taking care of my health, like those sorts of things. But then once I learned how to survive, 
those three principles taught me how to thrive and have been thriving ever since. Dude, really, really well said. Hey, l- let's get into one of the other principles from, uh, from your book. You mentioned, we've been talking about rigorous honesty. We've been talking about authenticity. Um, what are some, some action principles? And yeah, do, do, you have, do you have any stories about like something, this is how you act, right? Or the, the first one, sorry. This is how you, you bring yourself to the world, right? This is how you show up. Um, what are some principles that you would give advice for, uh, again, a, a budding CEO or an entrepreneur that you, that you learn from your clean time about, about how to take action? Sure. So uh, I'm going to answer that in two different ways. So first of all, you can't lead others unless you're leading yourself. And so oftentimes as a leader, we feel like we have to have all the answers. If you don't have, so if in a 12 step program, you get this thing called a sponsor. And the difference between a sponsor and a regular leader or coach is they aren't trying to be your expert or guru. They're literally just somebody that's going to share their experience working a system that works. And so when I got clean, I got a sponsor. And then when I became the CEO of a company that was growing, I had no idea what to do. I went and found someone who could mentor me, but not like someone who thinks that they're amazing, whatever. Someone that was willing to share their experience had been further down the path, just like a sponsor. And so first things first, don't do this alone. Find the equivalent of a sponsor to help you scale. Secondly, there are three specific things that I learned how to do practicing these three principles that help me get clean, but then help make me a better professional than most people. And that sounds really arrogant. So I feel bad saying that. The first thing is addicts are great at saying yes when they could say no. We say yes to drugs when we should say no. Number two, addicts are really good at hiding a weakness. We hide our addiction, preventing us from getting solution. Number three, addicts are great at avoiding difficult conversations. We don't want an intervention. Well, guess what? Professionals are saying yes when they should say no. 31 hours a month are wasted in unnecessary meetings by every single employee on average in this, in this country. Number two, hiding a weakness. Leaders, professionals hide their growth opportunities and therefore stunt their growth. You want to develop talent? Teach people how to share a weakness. Number three, 70% of employees are avoiding a difficult conversation with their boss, a coworker, or a direct report. It's because professionals are addicted to saying yes, hiding weaknesses, and avoiding difficult conversations, even though we know we should do them. I knew I shouldn't use drugs. That didn't help. It's when I got a program that taught me how to step-by-step learn how to say no, share my weakness, and have difficult conversations that I became a flourishing uh, person. And now my book and, and the program that we're building teaches leaders how to acknowledge that they have an addiction, an addiction to wearing a metaphorical mask. And we teach them how to systematically apply these principles so that they can say no and save themselves 10 hours a week in time so they can share their weaknesses and accelerate their growth and connection with the people around them. And so they can have difficult conversations so that they can be more successful. And so you take these three principles, apply them to those three problems, and you literally create a game-changing difference in terms of your capacity as a leader. Dude, this is excellent, man. We could go on for so much longer, but as we come uh, kind of to a wrap up here, Michael, uh, really, really enjoyed our time together. Uh, Great to get to know you. And man, I could sit under the the addict turned CEO learning tree for a number of years. But if we want to do that as a listener, um, where, what's the best way to follow you? Uh, man, you've, you've given so much value. Feel free. Let's plug your stuff. Um, what do you want us to do? How do we connect with you, man? 
Sure. Just go to michaelbertyweight.com if you want to send me a note and let me know how this impacted you. But if you want to check out the book, uh, I wrote it so that you can use these principles in your life. It's at greatleaderbook.com and uh, the audiobook's narrated by me. So if you don't like my voice, don't get it and get the, uh, the text copy. But I'd love to hear from you and I would love to help you in your journey if any of this resonated with you. So michaelbertyweight.com or greatleaderbook.com. Awesome. And then Michael Brody Weight, Brody's B-R-O-D-Y and Weight is W-A-I-T-E. So michaelbrodyweight.com. And then you're on Instagram and, and Facebook at Michael Brody Weight. Super easy. Remember that name. Again, uh, if you're driving, you can't, you can't get that. Just head over to your podcast app, wherever you get podcasts. Uh, look for the Michael Brody Weight episode. It'll be coming out in uh, just a couple of days here. And yeah, get it on demand. And in the show notes, we'll have all the links to all this cool stuff. Michael, thank you so much, man, for, for stopping by, hanging out with us. You are amazing. Keep cranking, looking forward to 19, 20 years, 100 years uh, clean and looking forward to you just continuing to transform leaders. If there's one last thing you want to leave us with, what's the bumper sticker uh, of your mentorship? What should we know? That you should be leading like your life depends on it because it does. I couldn't say it better myself. Michael Brody Wade, everyone. Thanks so much, man. All right, guys, that's the show for this week. Thanks for tuning in to The Driven Entrepreneur. I'm Matt Browning. As always, you can follow me at Matt Browning, B-R-A-U-N-I-N-G on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube. Don't go to Twitter, but YouTube's a great place for it. You can always, again, uh, get the get these episodes on demand, get this show on demand on YouTube and get it on podcasts. Looking forward to seeing you next week with another Driven Entrepreneur. Until then, bye-bye.